that we read in the book of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Who in former times did not obey. When God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt but from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Today we find ourselves immersed in a passage brimming with symbolism and theological significance, drawing intricate parallels between the saving acts of Christ and the cataclysmic waters of the great flood. I want us to open our hearts and minds to the transformative power of God's word as we listen to the meaning woven into this narrative. It's important to understand that baptism was a practice that they understood. Maybe not the ways that we do today, but a practice that was something that was a part of the Jewish world. It was a totally part of their culture. And as I've said before, I'm going to say again, there was a moment that you would take your burnt offerings, and after the burnt offerings were done, you would get naked, and we're not doing that, and then you would get into the water, and as you came back out, you were uh, put uh, a white robe was put upon you, and you were set aside from everyone else. Now there was a there was a, a reason for this, because you had been touched by the presence of the divine. You were too holy for human hands to be in contact with. It's it's important to understand that. That this, this place of baptism in the first century meant something completely different. There was a conversation as to, what, well, why is this happening? Why, why is this so important? Well, the author writes that Christ dies for sins once for all. And this, this phrase echoes throughout the ages, reverberating, reverberating the immutable truth that through his death, his burial, his resurrection, Jesus Christ has secured salvation for not just a few people, but for all of humanity. For Peter, the singular act of sacrificial love transcends the confines of time and space, offering a pathway to reconciliation with God for every soul that dares to believe. Christ's passion, you see, is the central thread. It weaves together the broken strands of humanity's fractured relationship with the Creator. 
Peter's idea is, is that through his atoning sacrifice, Jesus has bridged the unfathomable chasm that separated us from God, ushering in a new era of grace and mercy. And it's also important that when you hear those languages and that, that statement, that mercy was a new concept for them. When you asked for mercy in the first century, it was, please don't kill me under the boot heel of a Roman soldier. This mercy is something different. This idea that your life has meaning at this point rings through all of what we talked about. Okay. It's also a weird passage of Scripture. Scholars struggle with this passage of Scripture mainly because in the midst of it, we encounter a veil of an enigmatic reference to his preaching spirits in prison. Scholars and theologians have grappled with the interpretive nuances of this passage, offering all kinds of spectrums of perspectives to illuminate the shadowy recesses of the divine revelation here in this moment. So let's talk about a few of them. One interpretive option is, is that Prior to Jesus' incarnation, Jesus, in his pre-existent state, proclaimed the message of salvation to the disobedient souls of Noah's time. Now, I need you to hear me say that. This is one idea of how this works. That in the midst of Noah's time frame, Jesus somehow walked around telling everybody that they were sinning and they didn't hear him. I have a little bit of a problem with this. This view underscores the expansive reach of Christ's salvific mission, extending backward through the quarters of time to embrace even those who lived in, in, a, in a lifelong past. There's another perspective that suggests that during the interval between his death and his resurrection, that this might sound familiar to some of you, that Jesus descended into the realm of the dead, heralding his victory over sin and death to the spirits of the departed. The ascent into the depths of Sheol, the abode of the deceased, demonstrates the comprehensiveness of Christ's redemptive conquest, encompassing even the realm of the departed. You really hear this in creeds specifically the Apostles and the Nicene Creed, where Jesus descends into hell and brings people back from there and saves them. Again, not necessarily something that we would go into the biblical understanding, but it is definitely one form of opinion of why Peter is saying this. The third interpretation, or a third interpretation, says that in his exalted state between death and resurrection, this is when he ascended to confront rebellious angels, referred to this as the sons of God, found in Genesis chapter 6, who precipitated the rampant wickedness of Noah's time in this view. And supposedly, Jesus proclaims God's triumph over all principalities and powers, asserting his authority as the victorious king who reigns supreme over this spiritual realm. Do, do you see how complicated just that one sentence becomes throughout history and antiquity? This idea that Jesus was before and during 
and after becomes the conversation that in the first and second centuries is extremely hard for Christians to grasp. There's an understanding of a liminal space that water somehow becomes that connecting in, uh, FSM, sorry, brain is starting to connect. That water somehow becomes that liminal space between humanity and the eternal. Whether it was uh, through baptism or whether it was through the ritual cleansings, the idea that water somehow, someway was a destructive and uh, very helpful force in their understanding. So why does he tie Noah to it? And then why does he put the, this idea that uh, there were eight people saved at that time frame? Regardless of how all these things happen, Peter wants you to know that Christ's redemptive mission extends beyond the confines of human comprehension. He wants you to hear the phrase, repent and believe the gospel. Water, in its myriads of forms and manifestations, serves as this central motif in both the story of Noah and the Christian sacrament of baptism. As we trace the contours of this elemental symbol, we discern its dual significance as both an instrument of destruction and a conduit of salvation. In the great flood, all of humanity is wiped away for their sins. Do you remember? And, and, and what happens? Well, at that moment, everyone is safe, or at least the eight people aboard the ship were. Peter likens our baptisms to that experience. Hmm. It's an interesting idea. The sacrament of baptism, or as we call it, the ordinance of baptism, serves as a tangible sign of spiritual cleansing, renewal. It symbolizes the death of our old self and the resurrection to new life in Christ. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Through the regenerative water, waters of baptism, we are initiated into the body of Christ. Now here's the part I want you to catch. It's to be united with him in his death and resurrection, along with all of those that profess Jesus as Savior. I'm going to say that again. It's to unite us through Jesus in his death and resurrection, as well as all of those that profess Jesus as Savior. That's, that's what Peter is trying to say to you here. I want you to think about your baptisms. The profound significance in the light of the scriptural narrative that we've explored. Just as Noah and his family were saved through the waters of the flood, so too are we cleansed and redeemed through the waters of baptism. Consider the transformative power of this moment. In the act of baptism... We say that the presence of the divine is present. 
For us in the Christian church, disciples of Christ, we struggled with this. In the first century, uh, there was an idea of what baptism was supposed to be. And over time, the church has continually struggled with how that's supposed to work and what, how it works and what does this mean. And in the 19th century, our founders, Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, and Walter Scott, had this really deep discussion about what baptism means when they made statements like, no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. I warned my Sunday school class I was going to talk about this, and I, didn't think they, I don't think they believed me. But in all seriousness, in the 19th century, there was this move for restoration to what the church would look like in the first century. How did they operate? Well, the only thing that we have to know how the church operated was the Bible. And in the Bible, there, there was very little tradition. There's this moment, which is one of my favorite stories of all time, right? Jesus comes walking upon his relative John, who we know as John the Baptist. And John has prepared the way, right? He's, he says, I tell you the truth and I baptize you, but the person that comes after me, I, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandal. And in that moment of baptism, in that place of baptism, in that moment where Jesus jumps into the water, that's what I like to imagine, he gets into the water and it doesn't say, oh, maybe after a while. It says immediately or suddenly. As he came up out of the water from the heavens, the heavens were opened up, and from the heavens departed a dove, right? It's the coolest story of all time. And you hear the voice of God. Maybe Jesus does. Maybe the crowd does. It's not important. All we know is as you hear God's voice say, This is my son, the beloved, whom I am well pleased. And from that point on, everybody gets it wrong. <laughs> Baptism means dot, dot, dot. We don't even know if the disciples get baptized at that moment. We only know and tie it to Bible, right? And as far as we know, the disciples get baptized in the book of Acts. So even after the Lord's Supper, man, and churches have fought and yelled and screamed and hollered about how baptism is supposed to work and what it's supposed to mean. And at the end of the day, we can all agree on one thing. Something special happened at that moment of baptism. So the Christian church, disciples of Christ, not too long ago, decided that we would acknowledge all baptisms because in order for us to say that, we would have to deny that there was the presence of the divine at their baptism as an infant, as a young person, in a different faith tradition. It's trying to say that God was not there. That, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. And it would be very hard to prove biblically. There's an understanding of that our life has changed. There's a similarity across scripture. In Genesis chapter 9, we read about the covenantal promise of God sealed with the sign of the rainbow. A symbol of divine fidelity amongst the swirling waters of judgment. 
In 1 Peter, we read the encounter of the profound connection between the saving acts of Christ and the sacramental waters of baptism. It's through baptism that believers are, get ready, united with Christ in his death and resurrection. In Mark, we witness the baptism of Jesus in the, water of the waters of the Jordan River, inaugurating his public ministry and signaling the onset of God's kingdom as Jesus emerges from the water, right? There's this beautiful moment. As we stand on the precipice of divine revelation, we are confronted with the ineffable mystery and majesty of God's redemptive plan. Though we may strain to comprehend the depths of his wisdom and the heights of his love, we are called to humbly submit to the sovereignty of his will. In the early service, I, I, I wanted to pontificate a little bit about canoeing. And I caught myself and slowed down. But there's a reason that I love canoeing so much. You see, I think a lot of times in my life, I, I tend to find myself in that liminal space between understanding where God is in my life and trying to deal with being a human. Because being a human, well, it's no fun. And I think sometimes we have to find images and ways to connect to God that speak to us. And for me, being in the wilderness and being in the outdoors, it takes me about two whole days till I finally can stop my brain and listen for God's voice. And one of the best ways for me to do that is canoeing. I had no idea that I would uh, come to a point in my life where I would be taking my son on canoe trips and trying to pass on this knowledge to him. I don't think Quentin hears the voice of God. I think he hears me in the back of the canoe saying, paddle, paddle, paddle. But for me, while I'm on that canoe, I'm on that liminal plane of existence. You see, I'm on that water, that, that destructive force, and yet that life-giving place. And I'm hovering over the top of the water as I'm going from one destination to the next, realizing that at any moment the, the canoe could tip over and I get baptized. <laughs> Or maybe I'm just sitting on top of the canoe and I hear the sound of the wind blowing through the trees. And for just a moment, I can feel that peace of God that passes all of my understanding. You see, I think water and baptism are something powerful for us to be thinking about. And it comes to us in different forms. So it makes sense to me that Peter express, expresses his understanding of baptism as recognizing that moment when the whole world was changed and the ark was lifted above and it floated on the waters with the baptism of Jesus as he went into the waters and became dead to self and alive in something amazing. So too shall we find ourselves in the middle of this Lenten journey, experience that. Let us pray. In the exploration of the Noah connection and the symbolism of baptism, 
may our hearts be stirred with a renewed sense of awe and wonder at the unfathomable depths of God's love. Let us embrace the waters of baptism as a tangible sign of God's covenant faithfulness. Rejoicing in the assurance of our salvation through Jesus Christ, as we journey, may we be ever mindful of the profound truth that we are made new in Christ. Let us go forth as ambassadors of reconciliation, bearing witness to the transformative power of the gospel in our lives and in the world around us. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen.